Welcome. Thank you for watching this teaching video from Oak Tree Community Church in South Bend, Indiana. Please check out our other videos and don't forget to like and subscribe. Our mission is to help people come to know Jesus better and love Him more every day. We believe this will not only help our own spiritual growth, but also help us better influence the community and the world for Christ. For more information about Oak Tree, please visit us at oaktreechurch.com. There you'll find past message series, online giving options, and more information about our discipleship process that we call The Path. Now, enjoy this message. We'd love to hear from you in the comments or the website contact form. Thank you. All right, we're talking about prayer today. This is a really important passage. They've all been important passages, right? But this is especially important as we come to the end of Ephesians chapter 3 because what Paul is doing here is last week he started a prayer. This week he's going to finish it in chapter 3 and he's going to basically uh, sum up these first three chapters. He's been, he's been unloading some new revelation. He's been unloading a bunch of, of great doctrine. And after thinking through all this, now Paul did not write his own letters. He dictated them, which is why we have run-on sentences and all sorts of things in here. You know, 12, 13 verses in one sentence. He just keeps going. Uh, we have two sentences in our, in our seven or eight verses today. And uh, he's dictating this and somebody's writing it down for him. And he gets caught up in the moment as he's unloading all this stuff that we've spent five weeks now working through and he cannot help himself but break out in praise. That's what this morning's passage is. That's why our song set this morning, the, the songs that we sang were, were, are the ones that we sang, the way that we set it up that way specifically because when everything is said and done, this is what it comes back to. And he's going to use lofty language. He's been using big words all the way through this so far, these three chapters. And in chapter four, when I get back from the Philippines, in chapter four, we'll pick up there and he's going to make a shift out of primarily big doctrine into, all right, so what are we going to do about it? All right, so this is a, this is a, a natural break point in this letter. Okay, so you would expect it to sort of come to a big climax here, okay? So that's what's going on. And um, uh, there's a great doxology at the end that we'll focus on when we get there. All right, just by way of reminder, because I've been doing this every time and I don't want you to forget, Ephesians, this whole letter, uh, if we had to theme the letter, I'm calling it the body of Christ in practice. You're like, we haven't gotten to very much practice yet. It is coming, Okay, it is coming, but Paul had to outline and explain the concept of the body of Christ. Because if we are to look, if we were to look at Paul's letters chronologically, not, you know, Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians the way they are in our Bible, but chronologically the way he wrote them and as he was gaining information from God and explaining it to people, this is one of the first letters that he wrote where he really unpacked the doctrine behind the body of Christ. He's mentioned it. He's talked about it in 1 Corinthians. It's a big illustration, the body and the hands and the feet and all that. 
But the mystery of the body, the doctrine behind the body, this is like one of the first places he really unpacked it. And so he spent three chapters explaining this to us. What are we and how did we come into existence? Last week, he just touched a little bit on how we're to function on the spiritual level, right? As we are displaying the wisdom of God in the heavenly realms to angels and stuff. How cool was that, right? The prism and the disco ball concept. And uh, he'll be getting to the physical, how we function on the physical level quite a bit uh, in the next several chapters. But here's our, here's our quick review. Um, in chat, the first half of chapter one, he was talking about salvation from God's perspective, and he just listed out a lot of these spiritual blessings that God has locked in Christ in the heavenly places, guaranteed, cannot lose them for any reason whatsoever. The second half, we came across one of Paul's prayers, and I'll refer back to that a little bit more today, and saw God's power on display through Jesus. In chapter two, Paul took two sections to talk about our, our problem, our spiritual problem, God's solution, and a summary, and then he did that again right? A little bit more detailed as he talked about the body of Christ. And then last week, we looked at the first half or the first part of chapter three, where we learned about the mystery, that thing that had never been revealed before in the Old Testament or whatever, the mystery of the body of Christ, which is unity without uniformity. We can be diverse, we can be different, we can have different gifts, different abilities, different passions, we can be different languages and colors and continents and, and all over the world, and yet we find a unity in Christ that, nothing, that, that happens nowhere else. Happens nowhere else. Unity without uniformity in the church, and then, of course, our purpose to display God's wisdom, both in this world but also to the angelic realm. We've seen a lot of stuff so far in the last five weeks. This is a really, really packed letter. Well, today we come to this, uh, this, this midpoint, and he starts by saying, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, or I bow my knees, or literally he says, I bend my knees to the Father, before the Father. Now, I want to show you something. If you've got your Bible right there or you've got your app, I'm just going to scroll up to verse 1 where we saw last week. Look at how verse 1 started. For this reason, I, Paul, and then he went off on a rabbit trail for seven verses. Remember that? <laughs> he went off on a rabbit trail, and I said, okay, we're going to get down here to... Um, to verse 7, I became a servant of the gospel. To me, uh, was this, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles. And he's starting, starting to explain, starting to explain what they're supposed to do, what we are supposed to as the church. He says in verse 13, for this reason, I ask you not to lose heart because of what I'm suffering for you, right? Don't be discouraged because this is actually Good. And now for a, a, another time here in this chapter, he says, for this reason, I bend my knees. I bow, I kneel before the Father. Now it's interesting, he didn't say, for this reason, I pray. In a lot of his other letters, a lot of other places, he says, I pray this and that and the other thing. We, see, we saw that in chapter one. In a lot of places, he says, I'm, I'm giving thanks for you when I remember you. He didn't say, I'm giving thanks. This time, as he is 
thinking about the greatness of God, the mystery of the body of Christ, God's power on display through Christ, all this stuff, the only response that he could make was to fall on his knees before God. I bend my knee to the, because of all this, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, I bow before the Father, I bend my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, the normal pattern that we find in Scripture, and this is a pattern, and and if you like to cook like I do, if you sew, if you do whatever, you know that patterns are guidelines, and if you follow the pattern perfectly, you will make what, you know, the end result is what it says it's going to be. But that doesn't mean you can't play around with it a little bit, right? Okay? Sometimes you play around. Sometimes you can, you can break from the pattern and it's okay. Now, sometimes you break from the pattern and nobody wants to eat or wear it, right? Okay? <laughs> sometimes breaking from the pattern is a bad thing, but it's not always a bad thing. And so I want to highlight the fact that this is a pattern. This is a model that uh, is, it's our norm it's our, our general way of doing things from the, from the New Testament, but it's not the only way, okay? Because the fact is, is that the Trinity, the three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equally God, right? Equal nature, equal essence, equal attributes, completely equal. The, they differ in their personalities. They are three distinct persons and yet one God. And we cannot fully wrap our mind around that, and I'm okay with that for now. I'm not really, but I have to say that because that way you'll be okay with it. I'm still wrestling with it. I'm not okay with it. I want to know <laughs> how it works. But we have to learn to be okay with it, right? But because of their functionality, the Father plans, the Son implements the plan, the Spirit empowers the plan. Jesus taught that moving forward into the church age, the normal pattern of prayer is going to be to the Father, in the name of the Son, in the power of the Spirit. This is why when you hear me pray, or we, a lot of other people, you know, we, we, we open our prayers and we start our prayers, either Heavenly Father or Dear Father or something like that, okay? Again, you want to pray to Jesus? You can. He is still God. That's fine. You pray to the Holy Spirit? That's fine. And in fact, there are times for that. There are absolutely times for that. Okay? I'm saying the general pattern in the New Testament is we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? As a general pattern. Now, Jesus talked about this quite a bit in some of his last teachings to the apostles, the eleven after Judas has already uh, betrayed him, before he goes to Gethsemane. So we see this in John 15, 16, um, several pl- places in there. And what's interesting, and Jesus, Jesus, I mean, he actually said, you've never done this before, but you're going to, because I'm leaving, uh, you're going to pray to the Father in my name, and the Holy Spirit will help you. That's sort of the, the, the pattern, right? That concept in the name of Jesus, in the name, we, you know, we always end our prayers, and many of us end our prayers, in Jesus' name, right? Okay, it's like a tag. We don't even think about it many, many times. In Jesus' name, amen. It's like all one word, in Jesus' name, amen. 
okay? No spaces, no punctuation, no anything, right? In Jesus' name, the word name in many cases has to do with authority, reputation, okay? Uh, In fact, we'll we'll see just here in our, our passage from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. There is, there is something that comes from the Father to the families. When we pray in Jesus' name, what we're doing, if we think of prayer as a conversation with God, and in this case, let's say the Father, I want you to imagine yourself standing before the throne of God. The Father is right there, and we are making our requests to him which we have access. We've seen that in Ephesians. We have access to him. Great, no problem. When we say, I pray this, I ask this in Jesus' name, what we're saying is, if Jesus were standing right here, he'd say the same thing. I'm asking this with all the authority of Jesus himself. Now that should affect the way we pray. Right? We shouldn't pray for things that Jesus would never pray for. <laughs> we shouldn't say things that Jesus would never say. Because when we do that, when we pray for something that Jesus would never you know, say, and then we close with, in Jesus' name, amen. By the way, amen means so be it. Let it happen. So what we're saying is, as we end our prayers, by the authority of Jesus, let this be. Let this happen. So if we just prayed something that Jesus would never authorize, that's identity theft. Right? That's identity theft. We're standing there in front of the Father, praying with Jesus' reputation on the line, hoping that God doesn't notice that Jesus would not actually ask this. Does that change the way you think about prayer maybe just a little bit? Paul said, I am bowing my knees, I'm bending my knees, I'm falling on the ground, kneeling before the Father, and I'm going to ask something. And he was fully aware of what he was asking. This is why when we come to passages that say, ask anything in my name and God will do it for you. There's already this understanding, ask anything in my name that I would ask, right? Right? And the Father will do it because he's pleased to respond to the prayers of his children. He's pleased to respond to the prayers of his son. Jesus prayed while he was here on earth, right? What, what, one of his most famous prayers, there's like three famous prayers that Jesus prayed. The most famous one or one of the most is not my will, right? But yours, and this is why in those, these, these, these sections, these passages, pray anything and ask anything you want. That was before the cross. He was not laying out all the doctrine yet. When you look later passages, it's ask anything in the Father's will. And he would be glad to answer it. He'll be happy to answer it. Okay, we pray according to his will. You'll see that in James chapter 4. And we see that all over the place as well. So Paul fell down before the Father, knelt before the Father, and he prayed to the Father. Again, this is a pattern. Sometimes we pray to Jesus. Sometimes we pray to the Spirit. That is absolutely not wrong. But the normal pattern is this, okay? Um, 
Verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, this is interesting. You don't see, we don't see it in English, but the word for father in Greek is pater, and the word for family is patria. Okay, so he's got to play on words. He did that intentionally, and you see that in other languages as well, right? Very similar. Uh, he did this play on words. The father, what comes from, family comes from the father. Family comes from the father. The authority, the design, the structure, the establishment, the institution, all of this came from the father's plan. So when we mess up the family, when our culture screws around with the family, we're actually messing around with, the, with one of the plans of God the Father himself. What we have as families, what we have designed, what we follow, this, plan, this pattern, this plan for families, came from the mind of God. And he himself even uses the language. He's called God the Father. He considers himself, he calls himself a father. He invites us to be his children. He adopts us into his family. When we mess with the family, we've messed with God's institution. We've messed with God's plan. And Paul recognizes that. He says even the very core of what we live out here comes from the Father. It comes from him. Uh, one of the, one of the comments, uh, commentaries that I, I read this week, I thought had a really great line. This verse highlights the fact that God is the sovereign creator who brought, typo, all living beings into existence who are dependent on him for life and significance, down to our very being, everything. And Paul just got done spending two and a half chapters talking about how awesome God's plan is, how, you know, the salvation and the cross and the church and all this stuff, and he is floored even from the fact of family. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Just, just amazing <clears throat> the, the things that are, that are going through Paul's mind. Now, so what he does, he made four specific requests in verses 16, 17, 18, and 19, okay, that something would happen. Now, I want you to notice this at the top. I don't want to forget this. I, the, the title on this slide and on the succeeding slides, it's going to say Paul's prayer for us. So how, but Paul didn't know about us. Paul didn't, you know, we're 1,900 years after the fact. That's true. But one of the things I want to remind you of is that Paul assumed that this letter was going to be read by people he had never met. Remember? He assumed it was going to go to churches, it was going to go to Christians, that were not his friends, he had never met them, maybe he didn't think he ever would meet them. Don't forget, he's under house arrest in Rome. He doesn't know that he's getting out. He very well could have died shortly after writing this letter. And so he's putting it out there, assuming that it's going to go to people he doesn't know. Guess what? We're people he doesn't know. <laughs> and so I am taking that, maybe a little bit of a liberty, but that's fine. I'm taking that as if this was Paul's prayer for all the Christians of his day, I'm going to take it as Paul's prayer for all the Christians today too, of all time. Okay? And so I want you to think, this is the Apostle Paul, without knowing you, 
Just like Jesus uh, in the garden in John 17 prayed for all believers, even thousands of years, us, right? Here, we can say the apostle was praying for all Christians, and that includes you and me. You have the apostle Paul who prayed for you 1,900 years ago, and he didn't know it, okay? I just think that's really cool. Here were his requests, and these requests were recorded. God chose to preserve them here in Ephesians, and so I think these are still the requests we should be looking for today. Number one, that we would be strengthened by his spirit, that we would become the home of Christ. I know that's not what it says in the text. I'll tell you why I say that. Number three, that we would be unified with the saints. And number four, that we would know the love of Christ, like we sang about this morning. All right, let's unpack these a little bit. All right, verse 16. I pray that according to the wealth of his glory, he will grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person, in the inner man. Now in chapter four, Paul's going to come back to this topic and call it a new man. We have a new nature. When you became a believer, when you believed in Jesus as your savior, you got a new divine nature put into you, but you didn't lose your sin nature, your sinful nature. And so now we've got a battle between your old nature, your old man, uh, Paul calls it, and your new nature, your new man, this inner, this inner newness that he's going to explain a little bit further in chapter 4. I want you to see Romans chapter 7. Okay? There's a couple, of, a couple of passages that we're going to link, <coughs> link to uh, over here. In Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 21, uh, Paul is a Christian at this point. Well, he's thinking back. He's thinking back to as a new believer and wrestling with how to live out the Christian life. He says, I find the law that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. Right? How, I, I wanted, I'm saved. I want to do good. So why do I still have this evil with me? Because I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's what he's talking about here with the Ephesians in chapter 3. He says, I find this, this, this rule of life seems to be, now that I'm saved, I have conflicts that I didn't have before. Who knew? <laughs> before I was saved, no conflicts. I just did anything I wanted to do. No conviction, no conflict, no challenges. Now that I'm saved, something inside of me keeps saying, yeah, I probably shouldn't do that. Eh, maybe shouldn't do that. How about if we do this instead? And he's conflicted in his mind, trying to obey, and yet he's got this battle that's going on in his heart and mind. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He says, I've got this new nature in here that delights in the law of God. And yet somehow, and you may know the passage, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I find myself doing, oh, in fact, that's how he ends the chapter, okay? Um, it, in, in Greek, it says, ah! But in verse 24, it says, wretched man that I am. That's just sort of a loose translation of, ah, right? <laughs> you can hear, no, no, obviously not. You can hear that in the tone though, right? In verse 23, I see a different law in my members waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that is in my members, his body, 
still wants to sin. See, what's interesting is that our spiritual nature, spiritual natures, both the sinful and the divine, the holy, need our bodies to do things, right? Okay? Sin doesn't just go out there and do stuff. It needs bodies to do stuff. Same thing with our new nature. It doesn't just go out there and do stuff. It needs a body to carry out you know, the, the, the righteous acts of God. So now Paul's body is, 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 is sort of like, um, he's like, I want to do this, but my body's used to doing this, and I'm used to going here, and I'm used to you know, saying this or whatever, and I want to please God, and yet my body hasn't caught up yet with this new desire to please God. If we were to go back just one chapter to Romans chapter 6, this is why he says you have to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to the Spirit of God. And you have to dedicate. This is part of the excellent step on the, on the path. Dedication. You need to dedicate. You need to commit, consecrate the members of your body, all 2,000 body parts or whatever it is, right, to God to be used for righteous works instead of unrighteous works. And you can go back and read that in Romans chapter 6. Because Romans chapter 6 is theory. Well, this is what you have to do. Just dedicate yourself. Romans chapter 7 is, okay, it looks good on paper. It's not quite as easy as I thought it was going to be because I still have this battle. And so what does he pray for the Ephesians? That you would be strengthened in that inner being so that as that battle happens in your life between the, the new nature and the old nature, the new nature can be strong and win and you can actually become what God wants you to be and what we want to be, right? So number one, he says, I want you to be strengthened, strengthened in the, by the Spirit in your inner person. The second part of his prayer is, he said, I want you to be the home of Christ. Now, it's not exactly what he said. He said, verse 17, that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith so that... Because you have been rooted and grounded in love, we'll just stop there, so that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith. This word dwell is really cool because there's, there's one word uh, in, that means to live, okay? Just, just to live somewhere. It could be temporary, it could be long-term, doesn't matter. But when you put an, another word on the front of that word, that means down, to live down. It means to settle down, to hunker down, to dig in, to make yourself at home, to inhabit, to truly inhabit a place. Not renting short term, but this is our home. We're going to make this our home. We're going to live here. We're going to raise our kids here. You know, the whole thing, right? And we've lived in this home. This home has been in our family for generations, that type of thing. And that's the word that Paul used. He said, I want you to be the place where Christ feels at home, where he feels comfortable being, where he not just, not just rents short term, but he is there. Now, now he doesn't leave us, but, but he is there. It's, it's as if he has settled down and he is making you his home. That's a great word picture, isn't it? We know we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but we also somehow have Christ 
In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, it's Christ that lives in me. In, first, or in uh, Colossians chapter 1, he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not just the Holy Spirit, but we have Christ somehow in us, with us all the time as well. And Paul said, I want him to feel comfortable. I want him to settle down in your hearts through faith. We have initial faith that gives us the indwelling spirit. As soon as you believe, as soon as you are saved, you get the Holy Spirit. But as we grow, as we walk the path, as we persevere, as we come through the step of godliness and we become more and more like Jesus, it's as if we are becoming the home of Jesus as well. Okay? Some cool stuff in here. I'm telling you, there's some really, really neat stuff. A place where Christ is welcome and can work in us. <clears throat> All right, number three. Oh, still number two. Having been rooted and established. Ah, yes. All right, I skipped that part. So that being, or because you have been rooted and grounded in love. I just, I just wanted to point this out because he uses two different analogies. He uses the word root, which is from like, you know, farming or planting. And he uses the word, uh, I have established on my slide, we have grounded in, in the, the net version here. Um, some of your translations are also going to say established. That's actually a construction term, okay? It's the same word. If you take that verb and make it a noun, it's the word for foundation, okay? It's the foundation. So you've been foundationed, okay? but that doesn't work very well. PowerPoint kept saying, that's misspelled, so I changed it to established. <laughs> but if, I were to, if we were to take and make both of them construction terms, if you've, if you've seen you know, the house being built or whatever, it doesn't matter whether you have a basement or you, or you have a, a concrete slab. Either one, they do the same thing because you're going to have, even a, with a basement, you're going to have a concrete just slab at the bottom, right? That's your basement floor. That's what you can see. There's your foundation that everything else is going to be built on. What you can't see are the concrete footers that go deep down into the ground, all the way around, that everything, including that slab, including that basement, is built on. So part of it you can see, part of it you can't. And Paul used both words here, the roots that go way deep down into the ground and the foundation, the slab itself. Or if you want to stick with construction, the footings and the foundation of our faith. He said, you already have that. You just need to build on it. You need to make your home on it so that Christ can make his home on it and build up from there. And this is done in love, in the love of Christ that he's going to come back to. Because you have been rooted and grounded, because you have been footered and foundationed in your faith, in love, number three, you will be able, verse 18, to comprehend or to grasp with all the saints. This is the unity of the saints. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> I must have created that slide and forgot to go back and change the, the text on You'll be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
and we're going to see that this is the love of God. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? Let me take you back to Romans because this is great. Romans chapter 8. We'll start in verse 35. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble? No. Distress? Persecution? How about famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Because Paul admits it's written, for your sake we encounter death all day long. We're considered like sleep or sleep, sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we have complete victory, overwhelmingly conquer, more than conquerors, depending on your translation, through him who died for us? No, that's not what it says. Through him who rose for us? No. Through him who loves us. Through him who loves us. And then this great passage in verses 38 and 39, Paul wrote, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, heavenly rulers, things that are present, things to come, nor powers. We've seen that word a couple of times in Ephesians talking about uh, angelic beings. Nor height. You can't go high enough and get away from the love of God. Nor Depth, you can't go to the deepest part of the ocean and get away from the love of God. David wrote this in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your, your presence? Where can I run from your presence in your spirit? If I go to the highest heights, if I go to the lowest depths, I can't get away from you. And if that's true from God's presence, how much more those of us who know Jesus as Savior, whom he loves desperately, there's no way to get away from the love of God, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation. And last time I checked, that means you and me. We're in creation. Even we cannot separate ourselves from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We talk about his amazing grace, but there is also an amazing love there that Paul celebrates here in Romans. He celebrates in Ephesians chapter three. He says, I want you to really get this. I want you to grasp this. I want you to comprehend with all the saints, not just individuals. I want everybody to get this. The breadth and height, or breadth and length and height and depth. And thus, verse 19, to know the love of Christ. I guess that's our slide there. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Isn't this great? I want you to know something that is unknowable. I want you to grasp something that is ungraspable. I want you to be so unified with God, so at home with Christ, with the indwelling spirit, with the Father, the Father, the whole thing. I want you to be able to comprehend Get to the point where you can comprehend the incomprehensible and to know the unknowable. Will we do that? Not in this life, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't work toward that. 
Because First John chapter 3 says that when we see him, we will be like him and we will know as we are known. One day we will finally be able to grasp and comprehend and know. It's not going to happen today, but we should keep working toward it. And Paul's prayer was that we would. In Romans, uh, just, just read this, the end of Romans chapter 11 says the same thing. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. Several times that Paul could not help himself. (laughs) Thus to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you will be filled up to all the fullness of God. He's already talked about the fullness of God in chapter 1, verse 19, because God is the one who fills the church with himself, with the fullness of God. We'll see it again in chapter 4, verse 13 here in a couple of weeks when I get back. And this is similar to the conformity in Romans 8. There's a lot of comparisons, as you can see, between Romans and Ephesians in this section. Okay, And I would, I would highly recommend that you spend a few minutes and go back and read Romans at least 6, 7, and 8 in light of what uh, Paul's saying here. Now, he ends with a doxology. The word doxa means Glory. Okay, and it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, so a, de- a doxology is a word or a statement about glory. So it's usually a praise. Uh, sometimes uh, it's very similar to um, uh, a lot of psalms we find are doxologies. Okay, but it, it usually has to do with praise. And Paul ended with these two verses, just a, just a handful of words in what is a doxology. And basically what he does is is he summarizes the first three chapters in this short section. What I would recommend is that uh, you memorize this. If you haven't memorized this, that you would memorize it, that this would become a prayer, uh, something that you can uh, think of often. And one of the ways I want to help you do this is just in a couple of minutes here, uh, one of my favorite music groups put these two uh, verses to music, okay? They use the NIV translation, and we'll put that up on the screen, and I want you to hear this, and we'll use it as a doxology, as a benediction, as a closing prayer for our, our service this morning, okay? But I want to go through it first before we do that. Basically, here's what he's showing us. He's reminding us of salvation and the mystery of the Jews and the Gentiles that he's been talking about together in one body was far beyond what anyone could have imagined, right? Nobody thought this was possible, and yet God did it. And he's going to touch on that in his final prayer. His power that is at work in us, that's the new body of Christ, is the same power from chapter one that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and me right now. How cool is that, right? He talks about the major purpose of the church, one major purpose of the church is to glorify God, to show his wisdom and his glory in this age and in the coming ages, we saw in chapters two and three. The Father also glorified himself, chapter one, through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and saving work. And as we have seen in chapters two and three, this will not end. We will see this moving forward 
into eternity. And so Paul ends with this prayer. As he can't help himself, he breaks out. I don't know if he sang it. I don't know if he just uh, uh, just was so enraptured. He just spit it out and his his uh, 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 secretary was writing as fast as he could or, or however it happened. But Paul finally comes to his this big doxology. Now to him who by the power that is working within us is able to do far beyond what we ask or think. To him, to that God, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.